Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, January 7th, we are studying Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's a new year, and it's a new series here on Sharper Iron, starting today and continuing all the way through the celebration of our Lord's resurrection in April. We will be going through the gospel according to St. Matthew in a series titled, All Righteousness Fulfilled, Christ in the First Gospel. Throughout the account, St. Matthew writes of our Lord's life, death, and resurrection. The evangelist is eager to show us how Jesus fulfills the righteous acts of God recorded and promised repeatedly in the Old Testament. And St. Matthew tips his hand to that goal already in his very first verse, which is packed with so much good news for you and for me that that's the only verse we're going to be looking at today. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Mark Burkholz. Pastor Burkholz serves at Faith Lutheran Church in Oaklawn, Illinois. Pastor Burkholz, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be with you. So, Pastor Burkholz, we are starting with the Gospel of Matthew today, and as we begin that series, it would be good for us to do just some basic work on who Matthew is, when he's writing, who he's writing to, things like things like that, topics that you often cover at the beginning of a Bible study. So, just to start with, this is the Gospel according to St. Matthew. Tell us a little bit about who Matthew is. Well, Matthew uh, is one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve who we call to follow him and then later commissioned as an apostle after his resurrection. Uh, He's also known as Levi, so he has both uh, the Greek name with Matthew and the Hebrew uh, name Levi there, so he perhaps had some Levitical uh, lineage there. Uh, He's known as being a tax collector. He was sitting at his toll booth there when Jesus called him, so he might have been seen as an outcast or an outsider. Uh, but he was definitely around with Jesus for uh, his ministry there. He wasn't one of the real close disciples like Peter, James, and John, who often would go off privately with Christ, but he was certainly there as a witness to all the things that Jesus would have said and done. So how is it that we would say that the first gospel is written by this Matthew, Levi, one of the twelve? What's the evidence that he is the author? Sure. So it's it's never mentioned by name in the text itself. In fact, none of the Gospels have the author identified like we have with Paul's letters or Peter's or things like that. Uh, But this is just the tradition that's been handed down to us from the Church. Uh, All of the Greek texts that we have that have a name or a title on it uh, is attributed to Matthew, so it's not like there's any debate in the early Church over who this was by. So uh, if there is a, a name attached to it in any of the early documents, it's always Matthew. Uh, The other source we have is the early church historian Eusebius. Uh, So he writes a basic history of the church around the 300s, and he includes information about the Bible and where these books came from. And the tradition that he has received from another early church father prior to him, a guy named Papias, is that this was indeed written by Matthew. So 
there is a really strong consensus in history so that even though the text itself doesn't have Matthew or Levi's name uh, in it directly as the author, uh, that's really the, the, the common consensus that the Church has held to for almost 2,000 years now. You mentioned the Greek manuscripts that we have. Is, is there any reason that we might think that he, he wrote in something other than Greek? Well, there is a, a bit of a mystery here. Uh, the oldest manuscripts are, of course, in Greek, uh, but as, as Eusebius describes Matthew's Gospel and where it comes from and what it's all about, uh, and he relates this information that he's been passed on to him by way of Papias, he mentions something about the Hebrew dialect. And it's a little tricky passage to translate, but it sounds something like this, uh, that Matthew ordered the accounts in the Hebrew dialect. And so some people used to think that Matthew wrote first in Hebrew or Aramaic, and then some way along the line someone translated into Greek. Uh, but we don't have any Hebrew copies of Matthew, and the, the language that he uses doesn't seem like it's translation language. It seems to be very idiomatic Greek, so we don't have any evidence that there actually was that, that earlier uh, language work. There are some people who read that as, you know, he took the Hebrew sayings, the the statements of Jesus that have been passed down in Hebrew, and then he himself would have been writing uh, in Greek to the audience around, because that was just a common language that everyone spoke in that part of the world at that time. So there's no reason for us to doubt, really, Matthew's authorship, or these the Greek manuscripts that we have. These are, these are reliable texts that we've got of what Matthew, the tax collector, recorded for us concerning the life of Jesus. What about what about the the date? About about when would we place the writing of Matthew's gospel? So it's it's very tricky with a lot of the biblical books and trying to figure out exactly when they're written and a lot of how you decide these questions will tell you more about yourself as a reader of scripture than it may even say about the scripture itself. Uh, Jesus talks very specifically near the end of the gospel about the fall of Jerusalem and its destruction. And a lot of critical scholars would say, well, there's no way Jesus could have known that before it happened, so it must have been written after the destruction of Jerusalem. That happened around 70 A.D., so if you pick up a, a more critical uh, commentary on Matthew, they'll probably put it somewhere in the 80s. Uh, but, of course, we have no reason to believe that Jesus uh, didn't make these statements and uh, that he didn't know for sure that this would be happening. So uh, most Christian uh, readers and interpreters will put uh, Matthew sometime in the 50s or early 60s. Uh, some people believe that Luke had access to Matthew and that Luke was using Matthew as a, a resource when he was writing his gospel. And Luke is probably writing sometime in the early 60s, around the time that Paul is in Rome and he's uh, preaching there, if you uh, kind of follow how things go with the book of Acts. So if you believe that Luke wrote in the early 60s and that Matthew wrote before that, then you're going to put Matthew sometime in the 50s. But the important thing is that these Gospels are being written within the first generation after Jesus. This isn't somebody who, you know, 100, 200 years later is just collecting these, these things and passing them down. These are firsthand eyewitness accounts uh, written very soon after they actually took place. What about where Matthew might have been when he wrote this, and the audience that he was thinking of when he when he wrote this. Can we answer those questions very specifically? 
again, it's, it's, there's some guesswork involved here, because, you know, like with, with Paul, he often says, I'm writing to the church in Galatia or, or Rome or whatever, and we don't have that sort of a direct address here. So it's always a, a little bit of detective work and guesswork, and in the end it doesn't make a huge difference, because you know, the important thing is that they're directed to us. But if we want to try to do some determination on, just based on the text, what it says, you know, you mentioned in your introduction that Matthew is all about fulfillment. Uh, and there's a lot of the Old Testament that is very important for Matthew in the way that he presents his story. Uh, so Matthew is writing to people who, for whom the Old Testament is very important and still plays an important role in their lives. So most people think that Matthew is writing to people who have some sort of a Jewish background, uh, Jewish, either Jewish converts or people who have a, uh, some sort of a Jewish heritage for whom the Old Testament will be important, as we'll see as we get into verse 1. People like David and Abraham are, are really important for so there's got to be some sort of a Jewish connection here. Uh, the place that a lot of people come up with is Syrian Antioch. So this is modern-day Syria, just north of, uh, of Israel. This is where uh, Christians first are receiving that name. Uh, so there is a Jewish community there that spoke Greek, and so that's one clue. Uh, the church father, Ignatius, uh, was a bishop in Antioch, and he's one of the first people to start quoting Matthew. He's doing this already in the second century, so we can tell the church in Antioch knew Matthew from a very early time, so it at least circulated there soon. Uh, so it's it has some it has some connection to uh, the Jewish community, the Jewish roots, and people who would know those Old Testament scriptures well. But again, the most important thing is that uh, it's written for us. We're not just studying it as a historical document written to some people a long time ago far, far away, but uh, as the people of God, uh, even if we're, we're Gentiles, we've been brought in uh, through our baptism, we've been made a part of God's people. So these are words that are important for us to to consider and take to heart and I'll listen to as well. Hmm. So, so regardless of those specifics, which certainly there there were some people who are, are using it, and a number of people, as you said, that we would do want to make sure that we understand this. We are Matthew's audience. He he intends this. Is is this fair to say that he intends this for the church as a whole? even if he does have a maybe a specific congregation where he's attending and he's thinking about some of the things that are going in there, he really is writing this for the church as, as the whole. Is that a fair thing to say? Certainly. You know, the, the end of, of Matthew has to do with the disciples being sent to all nations, and that's certainly part of what they did was not only in their personal preaching, but in their writing, intending that these get sent out to the church. And these were writings that were intended to be used within a community, uh, similar to how we gather every week to hear the Gospels read to us as a church. These were not meant for private individuals to just kind of read at home and think about it by themselves, but they were meant to be read publicly in the context of, of a worship service. And one of the earliest descriptions that we, we have of a church service comes from uh, the Christian father, Justin Martyr, and he describes how everybody comes together on the first day of the week, and one of the main parts of the service he talks about is reading the memoirs of the apostles, the things the that have been handed down, and we can tell from the earliest times these documents were, were circulated widely. They were used, particularly in the context of the worship service, for teaching, for instruction, for strengthening in faith, and then leading on to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. That that 
use within the early church then leads into the, the next thing I think we should talk about. You've mentioned a couple times, it's not like Paul writing an epistle, you know, he doesn't say who he is, and he doesn't say where he's writing to. And in fact, really, the, the format isn't different. When we read Paul's epistles, we recognize much of the style of epistle that was used in Paul's day. Paul makes use of that in the epistles that he writes to the church. But Matthew, that's not an epistle. What what kind of document, what kind of uh, story is not the right word, but what is it that Matthew's producing here? Right, yeah, and you're, you're kind of into the, the, the genre category here. You know, how, how would you classify it? If you were putting this in a library somewhere, where, where would you fit it in? And right. we always have to be tricky with these sort of discussions because we don't want to come up with a, a definition first and then try to fit the, the Gospels into them. So we have some sort of predetermined notion as to what sort of cate- categories we want to try to squeeze it into. But we can notice some similarities with other literature, other bits of writing that were being produced at that time. Uh, one possibility is that these, these Gospels are histories. They're just telling, uh, a, they're definitely relating historical events. These are real people uh, operating in real places in real time, and we can connect these with other world events. But that doesn't really fit because we don't get a, an even historical coverage. We don't just kind of get every single year in Jesus' life like a chronicle would do. So what a lot of other people will compare it to are our ancient biographies, uh, which would tell the story of a person. And that's very close to what we have here in the, in the New Testament because we're basically telling the story of Jesus. Uh, but even there, we're not telling a lot of the things you'd expect to read about in a biography. We get very little about uh, his birth, his early life. Uh, we get a little bit about his ministry, and we get a lot about his suffering and death. So the way that I like to think about the Gospels is that these are passion narratives at their heart and core. Now, they really want to tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the center of our faith. And as you look across the, the Gospels, this is where they really tell the same story, the closest is uh, the story from Palm Sunday through Easter. And then everything that leads up to that is an introduction to help us learn about who this person is who's going to suffer and die and rise again for us. So they might include some different details here and there or tell the story and uh, shape it in a certain, in a little different way. But the most, the, 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 the main section of most of these Gospels is the passion narrative. So with with Matthew, it's about a quarter uh, of the story is just Jesus' death and resurrection and the, the last, last part of it there. So the gospel writers are taking some common conventions that are around in their day, particularly with, with biographies and writing historical things. And Luke is probably the most historically minded of the, the, the gospel writers. Uh, but they really want to tell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the center and core of our faith. And then to that, they, they provide like extended introductions to uh, Jesus' life and ministry that lead into uh, what he's doing for us. So how then does Matthew particularly do that? What are some of the themes that he's going to emphasize? Uh, what are some of the, the structures that he's going to use as he gives the account of Jesus' death and resurrection with this extended introduction? A lot of people have noticed that there are five big speeches or sermons that Jesus gives in Matthew. Uh, The most familiar one is probably the Sermon on the Mount, there in chapters 5 through 7. 
Uh, there is a uh, quite a bit of uh, preaching that Jesus does as he sends out the twelve on their first mission around uh, to the to Jewish people. There's a bunch of parables in chapter 13. He talks about life in the church in chapter 18. He talks about the end times and uh, what that's going to look like near the end, chapters 24 and 25. So a lot of people see those five big speeches of Jesus as the organizing factor. And some people even compare those to the five books of Moses, the, the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament, and almost seeing Jesus as a new Moses and uh, you can kind of see things that way, and uh, but again, you don't want to try to make it fit some sort of uh, predetermined structure. Some other common common themes that that are are brought out often. If you see how a writer begins and ends his work, you can see what's really important to them. Uh, in the first chapter or two of of Matthew, one of the big things is presenting Jesus as the King. You'll see that in the first chapter where it talks a lot about Jesus as the Son of David. Uh, chapter two, we have Herod. Uh, who is the king, but then the Magi come and ask, where is the king? And there is this question about, you know, who's really the, the king of the Jews here in chapter 2? And then we get this theme of you know, the kingdom of God. What is it like where Jesus reigns as king? It's not the ordinary way you'd expect a king to uh, to conduct himself. And it rails all the way to the very end where Jesus is nailed to the cross, and above his head it reads, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So one of the things that Matthew is very interested in teaching us about Jesus is how he is our king and how Jesus as king and the kingdom that he brings is different than any other earthly kingdom. Another theme that kind of comes through a bit is the theme of God with us and bringing into his kingdom not just the Jewish people, but how the Gentiles get brought in as well. So in chapter 1, Jesus is introduced as Emmanuel, that Hebrew phrase meaning God with us. And then at the very end, with the, the Great Commission, Jesus tells his disciples, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And so God is with his people personally in Jesus, and he continues to be with us now in the preaching of his word, in baptism, in the apostolic ministry. Uh, and it goes out to all the nations, not just Israel, not just uh, those people who are the sons of Abraham and the, uh, the Jewish community, but how God is, is with all of his people through this uh, this mission that Jesus is on. Pastor Burkholz, all of this has been a very helpful introduction to Matthew as we begin to look at it here in this series in Sharper Iron, but it's almost impossible to to think about Matthew and read his gospel without thinking about the others as well. You, you've mentioned that, that Matthew's not the only one who sits down and writes a, a passion narrative with an extended introduction. We've also got Mark, Luke, and John and we've got just under seven minutes here on, on this side of the break. It's probably worth our time to at least address a little bit the relationship of Matthew to these other Gospels, how we should think about them together. This is one of those spots where, where critics of the Christian faith like to come along and say there's contradictions. How can you believe such things? Help us. I know I probably opened up a huge can of worms there, Pastor Burkholz, and we could spend the rest of the time talking about it if we wanted. But But just with these few minutes here, help us to— Help us to sort through that a little bit. I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, so usually Matthew, Mark, and Luke are grouped together. They're called the Synoptic Gospels because they see the same with their vision of Jesus. John is kind of doing his own thing, uh, perfectly valid and true, but he takes a very different approach to things. So from the very earliest part of the Church, we've, we can, the people have been noticing that both Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
tell a lot of the same stories, and they even use a lot of the same words. You know, I teach a college course, and when some of my students turn in essays and they are using the same words as each other, I'm assuming that somebody's copying off of somebody else. <laughs> now, this can certainly be the work of the Holy Spirit, inspiring these gospel writers to tell the same story in the same way with these same words and phrases. But there's a human component, too. God uses these, these men, and so there's nothing unusual to think that they're reading each other's works and using that as, as a guideline for their own. Luke, in his opening chapters, even says a lot of other people have written this story. I'm just giving my, uh, my account to add to, to the mix. Uh, so the, the question is, are these uh, gospel writers using each other's works and how much and uh, what sort of an editorial capacity are they having here? And at the end of the day, you can do a lot of word studies and trying to track down where certain words come from. Uh, but the key is all the consistency that we have. It's actually a blessing to have more than one account that may give a little bit more detail here or uh, a little bit more insight there uh, so that we can see the, the great consistency and the fact that these gospel writers are not contradicting each other. They may include different parts that others leave out, but that doesn't mean it didn't all happen that same way. So it's something that should, as we read these different uh, accounts of the same story, it shouldn't necessarily shake our faith or cause us to doubt, well, who wrote first and who's the most reliable. And the early church thought that Matthew wrote first, and they put him first. And if you read a lot of early church sermons, they use Matthew a whole lot more than they use Mark or Luke. Uh, a lot of the more revisionist scholars in the past few decades put Mark first. They think that it makes sense that the shortest gospel was written first, and then uh, the others added to it, uh, Matthew and Luke, from different collections of Jesus' sayings. Uh, but even if you put Mark first, that doesn't mean that you know, Matthew didn't, didn't happen, and if Matthew would have used some of Mark's uh, storylines to, to work on his, or if Mark took Matthew's storylines to, to influence what he was writing, uh, none of that should cause us to doubt that these things actually happened and that uh, it's important for us to, to learn and to, to be taught by God through these, these men that he has moved and inspired to write in this way. There are certainly these, these questions can, as, as faithful Christians, we can come to differing answers on them as long as we're, we're clear on, on the details that you're, you're giving us, that these are not contradictions within God's Word. God's Word is true. It is given by Him to us so that we would believe in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And, and even if we come to, say, a different answer as to whether maybe did Matthew write first or did, did Mark write, we can, we can disagree on those things within that context of the Christian faith. Pastor Burkholz, we have just, a, just over two minutes here. How, how about in terms of comparing the accounts? Is, is that a helpful thing to do? Like when we read Matthew, should we be looking at what Mark says? How, what's, what's a helpful way to, to think about that? Well, it's helpful to read Matthew on his own terms because he, he intends it to be read as a unit. So that's really the first step is to just kind of take a, a, a run through Matthew and see how Matthew lays things out and how he talks about it. Uh, after you've had a, a really good, thorough study of Matthew, it might be interesting to check and see uh, how does Mark tell a similar story, how does Luke relate a similar teaching of Jesus, uh, just as a way to see, well, you know, isn't it interesting that, that Matthew brings out this little detail, or he includes something here the others don't? Uh, how does this contribute to the character, the way that Matthew may give his unique voice and his perspective to the story that uh, if we didn't have Matthew, then we would 
perhaps miss out on on something. So what what a joy it is to have these more than one account of of this, this great story. Yeah, to let let Matthew or Mark or Luke or John to let their account shine through. I like the way you said it. Take them on their own terms. Let them speak for themselves. And then when we go back to recognize that these do build a, a picture and, and to see how each one contributes to that picture, I think is a very helpful way. And so the goal of this study here on Sharp Iron is going to help us to see what is Matthew's contribution to that picture? How does he present Jesus Christ to us as the one who fulfills all righteousness, the one who comes as the Savior that God promised in the Old Testament, and he accomplishes that through this extended introduction, and then especially through his death and resurrection that Matthew will relate for us toward the end of his gospel. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back to study Matthew 1, verse 1. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, January 7th, as we are studying Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, with the Reverend Dr. Mark Burkholz of Faith Lutheran Church in Oaklawn, Illinois. Pastor Burkholz, prior to the break, we discussed the overall picture of Matthew, the author, the date, these questions surrounding the book as a whole, how it relates to the other Gospels. With this half of the program, we are going to take a look at the verse itself. Matthew's very first verse, 1 verse 1, the way that he starts his Gospel reads like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's just one verse, Pastor Burkholz, and we're going to talk about it for 25 minutes here. So that's never been a challenge, I think, for two Lutheran pastors. (laughs) So (laughs) let's, let's just, I mean, there is plenty here. So Matthew starts, as it's translated, at least in the ESV, the book of the genealogy, or or maybe it's translated a little differently in, in some some other versions. Why is just that phrase all by itself already important for us, Pastor Burkholz? Well, as we mentioned in the first part, there's a lot of Old Testament influence and uh, resources that Matthew draws on. And as soon as you hear about uh, genealogies, uh, the generation or, or origin is another way this word can be translated, all of a sudden you're thinking of uh, the book of, of Genesis. This is actually the same same word here that we get the name of that first book of the Bible, Genesis, from. So we're going to get the how this all starts. Matthew's going to take us back from the beginning. He's, he's writing a, a book to us, uh, and he's going to, at least from the start, uh, talk about where does Jesus come from, who uh, who is his family, how does that all connect with what what came before him. Uh, you know, a lot of people are interested in, in genealogy and trying to find their origin and thinking that, you know, that that's important in knowing where they came from and uh, gives some clue as far as their identity and who they are. And Matthew is going to begin by telling us uh, where Jesus comes from, who, who his ancestors are. Uh, 
different people and different scholars always have something to, to argue about. Uh, you know, what, how much of the book is this whole book, just the beginning, the, the origin of Jesus Christ, his genealogy? You know, the, the, the list of names only goes for the first 16, 17 verses. So that's probably the, the easiest way to take this is the, uh, the list of the names of, of, of all these ancestors of Jesus. But uh, you can take this word for genealogy or, or generations a bit broader to talk about the beginnings of Jesus. You can include in that perhaps uh, the story of Joseph uh, and Mary in chapter 1, or uh, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the fight to Egypt in chapter 2. Dr. Gibbs, when he writes his Concordia commentary, understands this as referring to everything until Jesus starts preaching and teaching at the end of chapter 4. So there's different ways you can take this, and how broadly or narrowly isn't, isn't a huge deal, but just to recognize that Matthew is using Old Testament language. This is the same phrase that's used a couple times in uh, the Greek version of Genesis that some of his readers might have been familiar with. And so he is just adding on to the story of God's people that began in the beginning. It began in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the fall into sin. You know, God has been working through these people for, for generations, for uh, through lots of different time and places, as you'll see as you read through that, that genealogy, but it's all leading up to Jesus. He's the, he's the one that all of these, these generations have, have been uh, leading forward to. I like the way that you put it there, that Matthew's adding on to the story. When he, when he begins this book here in this way, he's communicating to us, it sounds like, that that account that began in Genesis 1-1 and is continued throughout what we call the Old Testament is now simply continuing with Matthew's gospel, so that in Matthew himself wouldn't have known that, that in our Bibles today you flip from Malachi chapter 4 to Matthew chapter 1, but the way that he's beginning his book would indicate that that wouldn't have been an abnormal thing for, for him to see, right? I mean, he would have fully expected that after you finish reading Malachi, sure, continue on with Matthew, because it's part of the same story. Is that what, what is being communicated here? Exactly right. And, and the way that he uses the Old Testament all the way through uh, the gospel from beginning to end, you see the continuity, you see the, the, the similarities and the, the way that God is, is, is working with his people and how he's keeping his promises. Uh, you know, as, as Christians, sometimes we're, we're tempted to just kind of discount the Old Testament and get, get rid of it as being, well, that, that was just for the Jewish people. That's been fulfilled. We don't need to read it anymore. Uh, but it's all God's Word, as you'll see when you get to you know, the way Jesus is talking in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's not here to get rid of anything that passed, but it all just continues building on to this, this great crescendo that uh, comes with a, the birth of Christ and, and all that he, he does up leading up to his, his death and resurrection for us. It's all, all one story, and we get to be part of it, too. We don't stop reading at the end of that. We see ourselves in those uh, at the ends of the earth that, uh, that the mission is going out to. So, yeah, it's all, it's all one story, and it's all connected together uh, beautifully by the Lord. So Matthew tells us that he's writing the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And normally, I think for many English speakers, when we hear Jesus Christ, we take that all as his name. But it's, it's really rather, it's, it's better put that Jesus is the name, Christ is the title. So let's start with the name, Pastor Burkholz. 
what what's so important about the name Jesus? So yeah, correct. Jesus is the name. You know, Christ is a title. So Jesus uh, comes to us uh, through the through the Hebrew and the Aramaic. It's really odd sometimes how when you start changing from one language to another, letters change and it doesn't sound exactly the same. But this is actually an old name. Uh, goes back into the Old Testament in the name of Joshua. This is the same same name, just a little bit different form. And Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the, the Hebrew for that is the Lord saves. So it's an abbreviated form of Yahweh, uh, and then the, the verb for to save or to rescue. It's often a military term uh, shown for victory in battle. It's the one who comes to comes to the rescue, the one who gives you victory over your enemy, and it's the Lord who does this. So it's this, this word for, for salvation, and this name was given to Joseph through the angel. You'll read that as you move through the end of chapter 1 at verse 21. So Mary and Joseph weren't sitting through baby books and looking for, you know, what do we want to call him? Uh, but this was given directly by God. Uh, we know this name is important because it doesn't just it's not about how the name sounds or who he's named after but how he does his name in saving his people you know uh, paul talks about the name of jesus every knee will bow it's, it's an important name and it comes up again like i said at the end at jesus crucifixion over his head this is jesus uh, of nazareth so that name jesus tells us that the lord saves but how he saves is shown in how Jesus lives and especially how he dies in bearing the sins of the world. So Jesus is Savior. He is the one who has come to rescue his people, to give victory over our, our enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Uh, but it's not through military might. It's not through political power or uh, any way that you would normally expect. But it's through his weakness. It's through his humility. It's through his sacrificial death that he is he is our Savior. He is our Jesus as he hangs on the cross in our place, bearing the sins of the world. And, and that, that theme of this name Jesus, as you said, is going to come up right away here again in chapter 1, and in, in not tomorrow's study, but the next study, when it comes to the, the birth of Jesus and the importance of the name there. And, and as you've, you've mentioned, it, it's important for Paul, it's important for Peter in Acts chapter 4. There's, there's tons of Old Testament connections we could make, uh, thinking about the name that the Lord gives uh, when he, he talks to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And I, I'm sure throughout the, the study here of, of the Gospel of Matthew, we'll, we'll make those connections. We're, we're doing this as an introduction today. So we've got the name Jesus. And then now, as you've said, we, we both said, Christ is a, a title rather than a personal name. Why is the title Christ important? So Christ is a Greek word, and it comes from the, the, the verb for anointing, creo, I anoint. So Christ, or Christos, is the one who has been anointed. Uh, the Hebrew form of that is Messiah. So Christ and Messiah is the same word, just two different languages, and the, the translation is anointed one. So somebody who is anointed is somebody who is chosen or set apart by God for a specific task, for a, a specific office. And looking at the Old Testament, there are several people or, or groups of people who are anointed, for specific jobs, uh, the priests were anointed as part of their ordination, right, as they were uh, anointed and made priests in, in that way. 
There's a couple instances where prophets are anointed and set apart by God as spokespeople. The most common time that anointing is used, though, is in reference to kings. Uh, if you think back to when uh, Samuel anoints first Saul and then he anoints David to be king. Uh, if you read through the Psalms, often it talks about the Lord's anointed one uh, as a way of talking about the king. So you could talk about the Christ as a title that includes things like Jesus' prophetic ministry and that he speaks for God because he is God. Uh, you can talk about it in terms of his priestly ministry and that he uh, represents he's the intermediary between God and his people. He's offering the great sacrifice of his own body on the cross. Uh, but with, with Matthew and the way that he's moving here, probably the uh, best way to think about it is in terms of royal imagery. He's the one that God has chosen to be the king. And the people were definitely expecting God to keep his promises that he had made through David particularly to have this, this kingly, this royal descendant who would rule forever, who would reestablish the kingdom of God. And so when we start talking about him as the Christ, there's a lot of Old Testament promises and prophecies that are brought in. There's the expectation that God is going to send someone to, uh, to rule and to reign over his people. Uh, and there are a lot of people in Jesus' time who are looking for a Christ, a Messiah. They come to John, are you the Christ? Are you the, the promised one? Uh, and he, of course, says no. And uh, even when Jesus is, is on trial, there's the question, you know, are you the, the Holy One of God? Are you the Anointed One? Are you the Christ? So there's, there's a lot of expectation that the Messiah is coming. And here Matthew tells us right from the top, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one who will fulfill these promises. It's not uh, something that is left to the, the reader or the hearer to figure out for himself or herself all the way through it. But from the very beginning, uh, with those just pairing those words together, Matthew is telling us, here is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the, the one that, that God is, is sending to, to save and to rule over his people. Probably one of the things we'll see as we go through Matthew is that as he lays out his case that Jesus is the Christ, some of those things that he's going to show us are going to be, or we're going to, we're going to say, yeah, I, I saw that one coming. But right. some of the things that he's going to show us are, I think, are meant to surprise us a bit, right? I mean, some of the ways that Jesus shows himself to be the Christ proved to be rather unexpected to the people at the time. It seems is that is that true? That is, that you know, Jesus has to go over and over again the fact that the Christ has to suffer, that the Christ has to uh, die for the sins of the people. And even his closest disciples who hear this message from Jesus over and over again still don't quite grasp what, what's going on here and the, the importance of it, because it's not what they're, what they're expecting. You mentioned kind of going from Malachi into Matthew. Well, there were some other non-biblical writings in that period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament that uh, describes some expectations of, of the Messiah and who they're waiting to come. And it doesn't sound or uh, doesn't really connect to who Jesus was. They were looking for someone either to reestablish true worship in Jerusalem, to uh, set up an earthly kingdom, as you, you often hear. But this is not the type of Christ, the type of Messiah that the people are, are expecting. So Matthew has told us he's continuing the account of the Old Testament, the promises of God. 
in the person who is named Jesus, Savior, he bears the title Christ. He is the one who has come to reign as king, and as we'll see, to, to die and rise. And then Matthew here ascribes two more titles of sorts to him. The first is this Jesus the Christ is the son of David. And I think you've already mentioned David for us a little bit, Pastor Burkholz. Why is the fact that Jesus is the son of David, why does this make Matthew's first verse? So connected with this notion of, of the Christ, with uh, the Messiah, is that he will be a king. And the reason for that is God's promise to David, particularly uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7, uh, where God talks about establishing the house of, of David, uh, that he will, he will bless them forever, and that he will uh, establish the, the throne of David. And the, the throne of David seemed to have, have died out with the Babylonian exile, that uh, it had failed, uh, but there was this, this hope that God would keep this promise, that he would send some sort of a descendant of David who would restore uh, the, the kingdom, the rule of God. And that will connect back with how we began chapter 1 with the, the, this genealogy. So uh, we're expecting someone who is going to be a descendant of David to, to be this, this coming king. Uh, and so if Matthew is going to make this point, then he needs to make this connection between uh, David and Jesus. And we'll see this not only through this, this long line of names that he will go through in the, the next few verses, but you know, even the first words of the, uh, the angel to, to Joseph, uh, he addresses Joseph there as, as the son of David. So by calling Jesus the son of David, it recalls these promises that, that God has made, particularly to, to David here in 2 Samuel 7, other places to send one of his sons, one of his descendants. We know that, that Solomon, for all the good that he did, also fell short. And so we're still waiting for the, the, the full fulfillment of, of these promises that God has made. So this matter of Jesus being the son of David, when, when Matthew throws this title in, this is one that people would have been expecting to hear. That later on in Matthew's Gospel, and this is during the, the week of his Passion, Jesus has this conversation with the Pharisees about the Christ being the son of David. And so that that title, I think I think it's fair to call son of David a title, especially as, as you see, like you pointed out, Joseph gets called this. That would have been connected to these messianic expectations. But the next one, the, the son of Abraham, perhaps not so much, and yet that still is important. Why does, why does Matthew also say that Jesus the Christ, who is the son of David, why is it important that he's also the son of Abraham? So God, of course, made promises to Abraham, too. He promised to make him a great nation with many descendants, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. I promised to give him this land for himself and for his family and for his descendants. Uh, most importantly, at the end, he talks about how all the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham, and those who bless him will be blessed, and those who curse him will be cursed, but that God will use Abraham, this one man and his family, as a source of blessing for all nations. So that term, son of Abraham, uh, really doesn't have messianic connections. Pretty much everybody in Israel would have been a, a son of Abraham. Uh, so at, at the outset, 
Uh, it identifies Jesus with the people of Israel, with the Jewish nation, uh, that he is an heir not only to the promises of David, but also these promises of Abraham. But the, the promise itself opens up the door to all of the, the inclusion of the Gentiles and the people who are outside of the family of Abraham uh, to be brought in as well. You see this uh, in a lot of the stories that Matthew tells with the centurion, some of the Gentiles there that Jesus runs into, the, the woman who comes looking for help for her daughter. Jesus includes the Gentiles as well in his, his ministry and, of course, in his, his mission at the end of the, uh, the book we've mentioned a few times in Matthew 28. So this recalling Jesus as the son of Abraham really does does two things. It establishes him as the heir to this, this promise uh, all the way back in, in Genesis, but it also opens the door for including the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, in promises, in the blessings of God, which, of course, is wonderful, great news for, for us that we are we are brought into the, the blessings of Abraham through Jesus and through his, his work for us. I think that's a very important point to make, because as, as we've looked at this verse now as a whole, I mean, everything that we're talking about here requires this Old Testament background, background that would have been held largely by the people of Israel, the, the descendants of Abraham and David. And yet, within these very words are, are the key to understanding that this Jesus has come not just for the people of Israel, those who are related by blood to Abraham and David, but in fact, he has come for all nations. And it is amazing, even with, with some of the things we've said in the introduction already, how, how Matthew is, is very likely written to those who, who have a familiarity with the Old Testament and, and perhaps are, are of Jewish background themselves. Matthew is very quick to give us examples of Gentiles coming into the kingdom. It is in, it's in Matthew where we get the epiphany, the, the, the day that we just celebrated yesterday, the coming of the Magi. I mean, of, of all people to record that, wow, it, it's, it's Matthew. It's a, that's just an important thing for us to keep in mind. And I think maybe helps us kind of tie some of these things together, Pastor Burkholz, is that even as Matthew writes for perhaps a particular audience, he does have all of us in mind. And indeed, what a, what a blessing that is. Yeah, and as, you, as you'll see the next time as you go through the, the genealogy, you do have some, some Gentiles who are brought in even there. You know, women like, like Rahab and Ruth who are drawn into the story uh, and, and made part of, of God's people. It's, it's right there. You, know, you nailed it with the, the Magi who are, Herod doesn't recognize what's going on. In fact, he's trying to destroy what's there. But uh, the, these foreigners are the ones who, who kneel down and worship Jesus and offer him gifts. Uh, and even though Matthew is writing to this this Jewish crowd, these folks who can tie their heritage to people like Abraham and maybe even David, uh, he's reminding them that this message, that this gospel, this this good news, it's for all of all of us, for all the world, for their their Gentile friends and neighbors, and uh, that it's not simply about who your parents are from a physical sense, but it's being brought into the the family, the people of God, according to his promise. Pastor Burkholz, we've got just under three minutes left here on the morning. As as you reflect on what we've talked about, give us a a summary of of Matthew 1, verse 1, and and Matthew as a whole that's going to then help propel us forward into this study over the coming months. Sure. So Matthew tells you right off the bat, he's going to be telling you how Jesus began, where the story begins, and uh, he takes you back to 
to David and Abraham. He's going to tell you about this person who is your Savior. He is Jesus. The Lord is the one who will save you through this person. Uh, and this is the one who is the promised one, the anointed one, the one that people have been waiting and watching for. Uh, he's the one that... Uh, that fulfills these promises given to David and Abraham. He's the one who will bring about all these these good things that that, that God has promised. Uh, and uh, it's not a it's not a mystery. It's not something that that needs to be uh, somehow hidden and and figured out. It's something that God is is revealing from from the very beginning to His people, and He's continuing this this revelation, this um, this unfolding of his story uh, now as it comes to, to Jesus and what he is, he's about to do for them. Pastor Mark Burkholz is the pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Oaklawn, Illinois, helping us this morning introduce the Gospel of Matthew and go through Matthew 1, verse 1. Pastor Burkholz, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for the invitation. Matthew writes to us the book of the genealogy. He connects his story with the Lord's story from the Old Testament. You turn right from Malachi 4 to Matthew chapter 1, you're still reading the same story. And this is the story of the one named Jesus, the Savior, the Lord saves. He bears the title Christ. He is the anointed one sent by the Father to be the King and the Savior, the King in the line of David, the one who will reign over the throne of Israel forever, the King, the Savior, in the line of Abraham, the one who was promised descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky, the one in whom all the world would be blessed. And so this Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is not only here for Israel, he's here for Gentiles, he's here for all, he's here for you and for me. Join us as we continue to go through Matthew's gospel to see how this Jesus, the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, fulfills all righteousness for you and for me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.